Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Um, like I said, for those of you that trickled in, we're playing a little bit of Hurt today. Don is uh, on a great vacation with Wendy. We're super excited they get to go and do that. We've got talented people in our community that could step up and lead worship, which we're uh, very honored um, to have Stephen be able to do that for us. He'll be here next week as well. Um, so uh, we hopefully um, will have a little bit more things ironed out a little better. I am not feeling well. I just not like I did push-ups. I did all the things, the mental weakness. I tried to get over it, but whatever it is, it's got me down. So, but there is no, I can't go to the bullpen, all my sports metaphors. You know, there's nothing there. So it's just me. Meredith's like, do you want to find somebody else? I'm like, this is Saturday night. Who do you call? So, um, and so we're in. And so you got to bear with my voice. It's kind of funky, but I, I feel okay. I just, something's going on with my voice. So uh, maybe it's allergies or whatever, but. So we're not at top speed, but that's not going to stop the Lord. The Lord is amazing and great, and so we are, uh, we are plugging forward. Um, we are in week 40 in this journey through the book of Acts, and it's been a pretty incredible ride. It's been a pretty amazing journey. What we've seen are some of the most incredible encounters and relationships. We've seen miracle moments. We've seen unbelievable things that have unfolded over this past 40 weeks. But really what we've examined this book through the lens of is through the lens of calling. It's not just the planning of the church or the launching of the church. It actually is the call of the Christ follower. It's, it's if I say yes to Jesus, this becomes my call, and it becomes our call together as a church. And so we've examined this book not as something that happened 2,000 years ago when the church was born and a few guys like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Luke and these people had encounters, but that as followers of Christ, modern-day followers of Christ, we are called into this kind of relationship that says yes to Jesus, that we are sent and empowered by the Holy Spirit into the world. This becomes our call. And as a church, the book of Acts really is our call together. It's not a call, an ancient call, but it's a call that exists for all believers across the span of time. It's an obedient call. So how do we say yes to Jesus and at the core deny and die to ourselves, which is really what the book of Acts is about. The gospel hinges on our call to die to ourselves and say yes to the Lord. Death to self, right? The ultimate call of the gospel. We've been looking at it for weeks and weeks and weeks now. We've hit week 40. We are over halfway through. We are in chapter 16. And we have launched into Paul's second missionary journey. So just to give you a little bit of a catch up of where we were last week. Paul and Barnabas had a conflict. They came back from the first missionary journey. Everything went well. So excited. Two years, 1,200 miles later. Gentiles had come to know Christ, Jews had come to know Christ, like the gospel was exploding in the, in the sort of surrounding area, and the church was celebrating, and some time goes by, and Paul looks at Barnabas, and he says, we should go back to all those churches we visited on that first journey, and we should check in with them and see how they're doing, and Barnabas says, absolutely, that's a great idea, in fact, they believe that God was calling them on that, that uh, journey, and, and Barnabas says, you know what, we should take John Mark with us. And they begin to get into conflict, Paul and Barnabas, because originally John Mark had gone on that first journey, but about just a couple of months in, he bolted, he left. We don't really know why, but it didn't sit well with Paul. And so Paul was like, no, we're not taking John Mark, because he left last time. And, and uh, Barnabas says, but John Mark's my cousin, and he's going, and Paul says, no, he's not going, and so they split ways. Big, significant conflict. And it looked like this whole thing was kind of falling apart a little bit. And last week, what we did was we examined that conflict. And we talked about how significant the conflict was, but how it existed in an honest and direct manner. And we talked about how we deal with conflict in, in our church today and how we mishandle things all the time and, and talk about people behind their back and do things. But how we should live in open and direct conflict and understand that God can...
in the middle of it. And that's where we landed. We talked about the sovereignty of God moving in the middle of conflict. And even in the middle of human weakness and human failure, even in the middle of broken relationships or things that we think are devastated or that are, are just absolutely falling apart, God is still moving and his sovereignty never ends. Meaning that God is always working for his purposes and his glories in all things. Nothing happens by surprise. Um, God is moving through all things, even those things that we think are disastrous, to bring about his glory. And we talked about how both of these missionary journeys went out, and how Paul was introduced to Timothy and Lystra. He met him when they got to the city of Lystra. And Timothy plays this huge role in the New Testament, obviously, right? He's got first and second letters to Timothy were written to him. He plays a role in discipleship and the leadership of the church and all kinds of stuff. We talked about how God redeemed that broken relationship to bring about something glorious. Well, this week we're going to kind of pick up a little bit on that same trend because we're going to see some things happen in the middle of this missionary journey that seem like, well, they're a little futile. Like, where is God in the middle of this situation? And so we're going to be picking up in Luke chapter 6, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16, if you've got it. And we're going to start in verse 6 this morning um, as we kind of explore the second portion of this journey. And we're going to see. Some really incredible things happen that are going to introduce us to how the gospel not only is going to take root in all of Macedonia, but is going to carry itself, or God is going to carry it all the way to Rome. So uh, if you got that Bible, go ahead and open up. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into um, our text together. Lord, I thank you that you are bigger than um, my voice. You are bigger than just anything that we try and put forward. God, that we do not have to perform for you. God, we do not have to be perfect for you. You are redeeming and moving through anything and everything. And so, God, we are grateful that you are present here. We are grateful that you draw us into your presence. We are grateful, God, that you move even in the middle of our broken human relationships. God, that you are at work, as we will see today, even when we feel like nothing is going on. Take a moment right in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning, whatever that means um, however you need to articulate that to the, the Lord, just whisper in your heart, God, please teach me this morning. Just ask that God would do that in you. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know them. <clears throat> Be in the habit of praying for other people. We do this every single week because this moment it's not just about us, but God is bringing people here to move in their lives, to deal with them. And so let's pray for them. Pray for other people. Pray for someone around you. Pray that God would move in or through them. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in every word. Say in, in our worship, God, as we share in communion today, that you would be exalted and lifted up. You are our King and you are our Redeemer, and we love you, Lord. Amen. Acts chapter 16. So we are picking up <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas have got this sort of entourage of people, and they are traveling on the second missionary journey. What we know is that they feel called to go and retrace the steps, or at least go visit the cities that they visited on the first missionary journey. But Barnabas and, and, and um, John Mark set sail for Cyprus, which was the direction the first missionary journey went. And so Barnabas and, uh, or, uh, so Paul and Silas 
go the other way. They go up the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and they start on the back end of the first missionary journey in the towns of Lystra and Derby. And so basically they've gone on the same missionary journey but on different ends. <clears throat> so this group takes off, and they get to Lystra and Derby, and they meet Timothy. Paul is so enamored with Timothy and the things that he's hearing about him that he invites Timothy to come participate in this journey. And so they leave Lystra, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy and this little entourage of people, and they begin to walk. And let's pick up in verse 6. <clears throat> so Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready and at once left for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer, and we sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatria, and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. And if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So there is a ton of time that is actually packed into that tiny little 12 verse or 11 verse section there. So Paul and Silas and Timothy have left the area. They have left Lystra, where Timothy was living, they have gone through a city in Antioch, they have traveled all the way through Iconium, and they are preaching the gospel in these cities, and they step into the province of Asia, and we learn that the Holy Spirit is keeping them from preaching the gospel there. Now, <clears throat> we don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know what's going on, but we know that this massive province of Asia, which is to the south of where they are, which would lead them back into the other cities on the first missionary journey where they had hoped to go, was now blocked off to them by the Holy Spirit for some reason. So they continue north, traveling quite a bit away up to a land called Mysia, which is on the border of this other big area called Bithynia. All you need to know are these are huge regions, right? And as they get there, they're kept from the, by the Spirit of Jesus or by the Holy Spirit from entering into Bithynia as well. So basically, they're shut out of the south and they're shut out from the north and they only can walk this one path kind of northwest that leads all the way up to Greece, all right? So they are sort of shut out by the Holy Spirit on both areas of this, and they walk up, and they get there, and they finally get to the port city of Troas, and Troas is, is a really important port city, and they, they get there, and they, Paul has a vision, and that vision is a man that's from Macedonia that says, come, please come, begging Paul to come here. Paul believes that it's a, a vision from the Lord. He gathers the folks. They leave it once um, for the kind of area of Macedonia, and it was a couple of boat stops away, it was actually about a hundred and something miles, they get on a boat, they sail all the way to a town called Neapolis, which is a border, sort of port city, and they get out, and they make their way to the town of Philippi, which we all know, because of course the Philippian church is there, and when they get there, they stay for a few days, and it says that they went down to the river, expecting to find a place of prayer, where the Jewish people gathered, and instead they met a woman named Lydia, 
Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth and a worshiper of the Lord. And she had her heart opened by God to the gospel message. And she became a believer and she invited them to her home and they stayed there for a while. All that, <clears throat> excuse me, packed into these 12 verses. But there's a lot going on and I want you to understand the bigger picture because the bigger picture is really important for us to understand what God is actually doing. And we actually have to back up about five verses or so to the beginning of the second missionary journey to get this whole big picture of what's unfolding. Because we have to understand that, that Paul and Silas believed that God had called them and sent them on this journey. So here they are, gathered with the church in Antioch, and they are, are celebrating, and they are sharing story, and they're doing all the things that they are, are doing, and God calls them out again. And so even though that Barnabas and Paul have this conflict and they split, they all believe that God is sending them on. In fact, at the very beginning of chapter 15, we see that the church gathers Paul and Silas together, and they commission them and send them out. So they believe that, that Paul and Silas are being sent out by God. So we've got to understand that. This isn't just Paul going on like a little rampage mission. He believes that God is sending him. The church believes that God is sending them, and they commission them and send them. All right? That's what we know first. We also know that there weren't a whole lot of details given to this missionary journey. What we do know is that Paul and Barnabas both believed, even after the split, that God had called them to go and retrace their steps. In other words, to go to the churches they'd preach the gospel to and check on the believers there. In fact, the wording really is that we should go back to those churches and see how they are doing. So, in the beginning of, of that sending, the only details they have is, are that we need to go back to these cities. It's probably been at least two years since they visited some of them and check on the believers there. Like, let's go encourage them and see how they're doing. <clears throat> Those are the only details. So they believe that God was sending them, and the only details they have is that we're going to go back to those same cities. And so they obediently set out. They just gathered their stuff in a little group of people, and they began to walk. Barnabas and John Mark sailed for Cyprus. Paul and Silas walked north along the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea, obediently following the Lord. And for the first part of John Mark, or the first part of Paul and Silas' journey, God seemed to be blessing them like crazy. Like the whole verses, all the verses we looked at last week, those first five verses, they were encountering, encountering incredible things. Every city they stopped in, they were encouraging people with the word of the Lord. It says that the numbers of the churches were growing. When they get to Lystra, they meet Timothy. And Timothy is this young man, probably 14 or 15, and he's growing in the faith, and everybody's talking about him. And Paul is so impressed with him that he says, I'm going to be bringing you with me. And Paul ends up discipling him, and Timothy ends up leading many of the churches that they plant. I mean, it's an incredible picture. And it says at the end of verse uh, 5 there, <coughs> excuse me, that as they shared the gospel, right, they concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to, oh, excuse me, the verse 5, it says that the churches were strengthened in their faith and they grew daily in numbers. So the first quarter of this journey, exploding things. I mean, amazing things are happening. Churches are being strengthened. They're growing. Timothy becomes part of the journey. God is blessing it. But something seems to shift after that point. So here we are walking with the Lord. Things are happening and movement is taking place and God is blessing us and we're meeting Timothy and churches are growing and the gospel's going out and we leave the area right outside of Iconium. 
the area we're supposed to turn down now and begin to head to those other cities that we visited. That was what we thought our instruction was. And we turned to the province of Asia, the one in the south, and all of a sudden we're kept by the Holy Spirit from even entering. We don't know why. We don't know how. We just know that they can't preach the gospel there. Maybe it was hostile. Maybe the Lord just showed up and said, you cannot go here. But whatever it was, doors were closed. So they regroup a little bit. And they begin to walk north because they can't go south. So they head north, continuing on. They go all the way across this area, this massive land area, and they come to this border, this place called Mysia, which is on Bithynia, which led all the way to the north. And the Spirit of Jesus kept them from going in there as well. So they can't go south. They can't go north. They just keep walking until they come to the ocean. They walk clear across this continent, come to the ocean, and they get to Troas. Now what you've got to understand is that from the moment they left Iconium, which is real close to Lystra where they picked up Timothy, to walk to Troas is at least 350 miles. 350 miles on foot walking with closed doors. And we know that from our little text there that nothing seems to happen in that 350 miles. No preaching, no sharing. They're being kept from preaching the gospel in Asia, kept from preaching the gospel in Bithynia, They are not seeing God's move. So most likely for months, they just walked. Now here is God who had showed up in this amazing way. And he'd done a huge thing and churches were growing. And they pick up Timothy and they step foot and they begin to continue on the journey that they believe that God had called them to. And God goes actively silent or begins to close doors for 350 miles. Now I don't know if you've ever been in a place like this in your life. Where you felt like God had had called you to do something, or had sent you, or engaged you, or was doing something and was present, and then seemed to go almost silent, or seemed to close every door that you open, and you just find yourself walking, wondering if God is rejecting you, rejecting what you were called to, whatever it is, but something is not going how it should, right? That's kind of what Timothy and Silas and, uh, and Paul are walking through. But we don't see them seeing it as God's rejection. For whatever reason, they just sort of see it as God's redirection. Like we're just going to keep going because we believe God has called us until he shows himself to us. So they walked for 350 miles from the last point in time they were able to preach till they get to Troas. They basically ran into the ocean. There's nowhere else to go. They can't turn back south, they can't preach the gospel north, and they're standing on the edge of the ocean, and they're basically going, here we are. But at Troas, two things happen. The first thing is that Luke seems to have joined the journey. So everything in the second missionary journey, if you look at that, changes in the, in the language to us and we. It was never like that before. Scholars believe that Luke, our author of the book of Acts, joins the journey there. Who knows what he was doing up in Troas, but he's there. And so after that point, Luke begins to use the terms us and we. Second thing that seems to happen is that Paul has a vision. A man, a Macedonian man, right, a Greek man, (coughs) excuse me, appears to him in this vision and says, please, please come to Macedonia. Now Macedonia is a really important region. Two major churches are planted there, the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica, right, the Thessalonians and the Philippians. It becomes not only a major gateway to taking the gospel to Rome, but they actually step in and help in an incredible way the distressed church in Jerusalem. 
when it goes through a massive famine and a huge struggle with poverty, these churches step in and help. These churches are very strategic. And we know from our Philippian study a few years ago that Paul has this deep and special affinity, this love for the Philippian church. So this vision, this man says, please come to Macedonia. Paul believes that that is God finally speaking to them, saying, this is where we're to go. So at once, what do they do? They gather up their stuff. It tells us at once they gathered their stuff and they left for Macedonia. So after Paul seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, right, Luke now, to preach the gospel to them. So they put out to sea. They had to sail there, about a hundred and something miles on the ocean. They sail from there, and they stop at this island, Samothrace. They get out. They stay there for a day or two. They get back on the boat. They sail over for a Greek town called Neapolis. There they get on land, and they walk to the city of Philippi. And Philippi was a strategic city because it was on this really important trade route called the Ignatian Way, which made its way all across the province and was really important. And so they probably just made their way up to the, the most important city in the area. And when they got to Philippi, they did the only thing that they knew to do. Every time Paul and his companions would go to a town on the Sabbath, they would go to the temple. And they would begin to share the gospel there. We see it happen time and time and time again. But you've got to remember, there are no believers in Philippi, right? Paul and, these, and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they are now taking the gospel for the first time. And there were very few Jews this far north. In fact, we know that in Philippi there were so few Jews that there wasn't even a temple there. So on the Sabbath... Instead of being able to go to the temple, it says that Paul and his companions went down to the river where they expected to find a Jewish place of prayer. There were not even enough Jews in the city of Philippi to have a temple or a synagogue, and so they would gather by the river to pray on the Sabbath. And so Paul and his companions do what they know to do, which is go to the temple, but there's not one. So they ask around, and they find out that a group of Jews on the Sabbath goes down to the river to pray, and so Paul goes down there looking for this group of Jews, but instead of finding a group of Jewish people praying, he finds a group of women. And he's introduced to this woman named Lydia. And Lydia's a dealer in purple cloth. She's a businesswoman. And she's a worshiper of God. And what that means is that she is a woman who is Gentile, but believes in the God of Israel, but had not gone through all the rites to make herself Jewish. That's what that phrase, worshiper of God, means. It means that she believed in God, Yahweh, but had not committed to all the ceremonial things that it would take to actually convert to Judaism. And he begins to learn this about her, and it says that the Holy Spirit opened her heart to the gospel. She becomes saved, whole household is baptized, and she says, come stay with me. And you know what happens at that moment? The church in Philippi is born out of the household of Lydia. Lydia becomes the launching place for the gospel, not only in Philippi, but for all of Macedonia. She is the entry point for the Philippian church, and she becomes a really important part of the church. This woman, down by the river, selling purple cloth, becomes the entry point for the gospel in all of Asia, in all of Greece, and all the way up through Rome. A couple of things that I want you to see in this, because this picture is really, really important. And, and, and a few of those things are really this. One is that God's call on our life um, usually doesn't include all the details and is very often inconvenient. 
I don't know, I'm not talking about the big call like, you know, what am I called to for all of my life? But when God speaks and calls us to do something, whether it's change jobs or, um, you know, make a major shift in our life or, or get rid of this or give in this way or, or engage in relationship with this person or share the gospel with this person. When God calls us, he very seldom gives us details. You're not reading the Bible if you think that God gives the details to everybody when he invites them into journey with him. Very seldom does it happen. In fact, more times than not, what God says is to go. He just sins, right? Philip, when he is called to go share the gospel down on that desert road to the Ethiopian unit, God says, just go. Abraham, when God calls him out of his homeland, he says, go to the land that I will send you. No idea where that is. All through scripture, God calls people without giving them details. All the disciples were called this way. Jesus would walk up and say, come with me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. No plan, no details, no outline, no, no kind of setup for how you're going to be able to afford this, how you're going to be able to do it, how it's going to work. Are people going to accept it? Are your parents going to reject it? Whatever. Are they, that person that you're sharing with, are they going to push back? Is this thing going to end up me falling flat on my face? What if I make this career change and it fails? God never gives all of those details. And oftentimes in those calling moments, they're really inconvenient. Because you have just got your life organized to where you like it. Or you just became comfortable with where you are. And God interrupts those moments and calls you to something. Usually it's out of whatever that comfort is. It's not always a call across the world to go to Africa or China and plant your life as a missionary. Sometimes it's to engage this person over there who you have had a deep struggle with, right? To engage them in a way that shows them love and forgiveness or freedom. Or sometimes it's you've had a strange relationship with your mom for 18 years. And you feel God prompting you to reach out. Right when we become comfortable is the moment that God calls us out of that comfort with very little detail. This is what happens with Paul and Silas, right? They are just being simply called by God with very little detail. They just simply think they're going to go and embark on a journey to visit the churches they've already seen. Pretty comfortable. We know the journey. We know how it goes. We know all the people there. But God often, right in the middle of that, God often withholds information or details so that we will seek him more intently. Now hear me say that. God will often withhold details or information so that we will seek him more intently. There's a reason God does not give us all the details for the things he calls us to. Because God wants us to seek him and know him. The major conflict in our Christian life is really one about control. Most of us will wrestle with this our entire lives. We want God to provide answers or we want to be able to control outcomes and solutions. And God just wants us to know him. We are so interested in having the setup before we go. And God just wants us to know his heartbeat. So God withholds that information so that we will have to seek him. Not because he's cruel and he wants you to struggle and be afraid and live in anxiety. But because God wants you to know his heart. And if you don't know where you're going or how you're going to do it or how it can happen or how in the world this is ever going to work out, you are left with seeking God. Because when it doesn't make sense on paper, right, when we can't make the numbers line up, when these things don't touch, when I haven't spoken to her for 20 years, there's no way. Well, the only way is to say, God, I just want to seek you. What do you have for me? When we're left with the inability 
to fix our own struggles, our own problems, our own things, we have to seek the Lord. And so God withholds information so often, not so that we'll be floundering around, but so that we'll seek him, right? So that we'll seek him. But our struggle is we so want answers and details, and God just wants us to know who he is. God will do all the stuff, but we just want it done in our timing and in our framework. But here's the real kicker in this whole thing, right? So we know those things. We see that played out with Paul and Barnes. But the, the kicker in this whole text for me is really the understanding that God is always at work in me, and he's always at work around me. I don't know how many times in your life you've been through a kind of a stretch of time where you feel like you were walking 350 miles without so much as a whisper from the Lord. But I've certainly had them. I've had those times in my life where I just felt like, God, I feel like I'm doing everything that you told me to do, and you are absolutely not here, or this is so hard, or this is so empty, or this is so silent that I don't know where you are. Are you rejecting me? Are you absent? Are you gone? Why am I just walking? Right? I don't know if you've ever been there, but those moments are very real. And sometimes they're a long period of time. Sometimes it's just a desperation, desperation of the soul. But this 350 miles that Paul and Silas are, are walking are very real to me. Because it's months of them saying, did God really send us here? I mean, surely we didn't walk all this way just to get locked out of Asia and locked out of Athena and end up at the end of the ocean. I mean, where are we going? Understanding that God is at work is really important. Because to understand that God is working your heart, pushing you to holiness, pushing you to a place where you can know him, to where he is sanctifying and moving and you, making you more like him, is part of this walk. It's part of this journey. It's part of the preparation. Understanding that even in these moments, God is working in you, readying you to engage whatever it is that he is doing is important. But also understanding that God is at work around you for his purpose. So let's take our scenario today. Maybe, just maybe, this 350-mile journey, this long walk, this absence of God, to walk all the way through this entire continent, to land on the ocean, to take a boat 100 miles, to meet one woman down by the river, right, who would become the entry point for the gospel into Rome. Maybe all that walking was because God was readying her heart. Maybe Lydia had to be at a place where she was going to receive the gospel. Listen to what happens. At the very end of that, it says that Lydia, dealing purple cloth with worship of God, the Lord opened her heart to respond to God's message. Maybe the Lord was readying for those months, that long walk, that 350 miles that Paul and Silas and, and Timothy are walking. God is readying Lydia to hear the message that they will bring. If we begin to look at life like that, then maybe I understand that God is at work around me. And that just because he's not performing in my timetable, on my reasoning, with my excuses, that God is working in me, drawing me to a place where I can receive and understand whatever it is that he has for me, even if that's challenge or difficulty. And that maybe God is readying people around me means that that walk, that 350-mile walk, is not a walk of desperation, but that I can find joy in it. Paul and Silas, they never spoke a word. They just simply kept going. It was almost as if instead of God rejecting, God was just redirecting. Me, the moment God shuts that door to Asia, 
I start asking questions. I start getting fearful. I start thinking I made some wrong choices. By the time I get to Bithynia, I am in a full sprint from God because he is punishing me. By the time I end up on Troas, I'm in a faith crisis. But we don't see that happening with these guys. We see them saying, God sent us. We know that he's directing us. And so we'll follow him until he speaks to us. As I read this passage, there's a part of me that desperately longs for that. God, I know that you're real. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And I know that you are sending and directing me. And so in those closed door moments and those fearful moments and those moments where you seem to be absent, I'm going to trust that you're at work. Maybe you're readying my heart. Maybe you're readying somebody else's heart. But God, I'm going to find joy here. Because if the goal of our Christian life is death to self and yes to Jesus, then there is joy in the moments of being pushed towards holiness. There is joy in the moments of walking those 350 miles saying, God, I want to follow you even when it's not clear because I trust that you're at work. But if the, resu- if the reverse of that is true, if the goal of our Christian life is to have answers, is to know outcomes, is to see them before we get there, then we end up with a restless and longing heart that is passionless and that is wondering why I'm not content. So I don't know where you are in which one of those scenarios this morning, but I venture to say you're in one of those places, that you're finding joy in the journey, that you're finding joy in the walking, in the pursuit of holiness, that even in the moments where you are most fearful, you trust that God is making you into more like him, more of image of Jesus, or you're restless and you're fearful and you're longing because you're fighting for outcomes and God is saying, I'm not interested in giving you details. I'm interested in giving you me. Not sure where you line up this morning, but I'll tell you what, as I read this text, I know exactly where I want to be and exactly where I'm not. I want to long for a place where even in the walking moments, 350 miles, whatever it is, I'm finding joy in the fact that I know that God is work. I believe that he is that real and he is moving that deeply in me that even when I don't sense it, I trust him. I trust that he is working on my heart and he's working on whoever's heart around me so that I can line up to be used by him. Really, it's a picture of trust. It's a picture of trust. Do you really trust that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do? And I wish that my answer was always yes. But it's a daily confrontation with myself. Death to self, yes to Jesus. The ultimate picture is of obedience, which is really what the ultimate picture of this table is. We celebrate communion once a month here, but really, it's a picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of obedience. It's a picture of saying, God, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you did for me what I can't do for myself, that even when I was in desperation, dying in my sin, you were at work, that you sent your son to give us life, that this picture is the ultimate picture of trust, that if you could do that, Surely you could work out the daily portions of my life that I'm afraid of. 